you would take out the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I hope in these days that uh, your Bible is becoming dear to you. I hope the words of Christ are becoming sweet and precious to you. We hear so many things, we read so much these days, have our own opinions, and yet the Word of God is true. The Word of God is solid. The Word of God doesn't change. It's, it's infallible. It's, our, it, it's the only rock-solid thing that we know is real in this world. And so I invite you, even today, I hope this is not the only time you open your Bible. If it is, you're going to be weak in the days to come. If it is, the days to come are going to be really hard for you. If this is the only time you open up your Bible, this should be a time that cultivates and gets you excited about being in the Word during the week and looking back to what God has said. With that said, stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. The Spirit says to us today in pages of Scripture, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those walking according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, it's in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Oh God, this is our hope that you, through your cross, have paid the penalty for our sin and will reverse the curse of sin. What has begun in our hearts in the gospel will make us new when Christ comes. Will make us right when Christ comes. And all that is wrong will be made untrue. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his power. We thank you for the resurrection. And we long for the resurrection of all things in heaven. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up in small town in Tennessee, uh, you probably wouldn't be shocked to know this, but most men that I interacted with on a daily basis, they had a chew in their mouth most of the time. Now, if you don't know what a chew is, it's tobacco. It comes in the form of chewing tobacco and dip and snuff and those sort of things. But most men that I was around on a daily basis, uh, my granddad was a farmer, so if I spent time with him, he had a chew in his mouth. My football coaches, baseball coaches, and to be honest with you, I had a lot of high school teachers who... They had tobacco in their mouth even when they were teaching. Now, I know that may shock you, but that's a reality 
growing up where I grew up. And so as I watched men talk and interact, uh, spitting, most of the time outside or in a cup, was just something you did almost as a sign of fellowship. It was almost like to communicate to everybody you were talking with, I'm really focused in what you're saying to me. Uh, I'm really focused and I'm really engaged in what's going on, or at least that's the way I interpret it. Uh, And so I never really got into chewing tobacco or those sort of things. I tried it once and got really, really sick, and so never tried it again. But the, the spitting thing was always something I did, even overkill. So if I was talking to somebody, I would be spitting. And then when I was working, I was spitting. I was playing sports. I was always spitting and doing these things. This was just a habit that I developed after watching people all around me in this small town in Tennessee. So as a recovering redneck, trying to become more refined in Richmond, Kentucky, this is something I've had to work on. I've even at times gotten so excited about preaching. I've gotten so excited about the things I'm about to say, and I'll feel myself up here get focused, and it's almost like I'm coaching a baseball game, and I'll start to spit and go, oh, whoa, where am I? I can't do that. Now, I have to get rid of such habits because it doesn't fit in public settings, as you know, and it's also a habit that I have realized I shouldn't pass on to all of my kids. Now, Most of you, if you know anything about my family, you've met my very feminine, beautiful daughter, Anna Elizabeth. And I say Anna Elizabeth just to make it sound more feminine. But there was a time when she was little, maybe two or three. And if I was outside working, she was going to be there right beside me. If I was at a baseball game, even coaching, she was going to be right there beside me. There was a time in her life where I think watching her brothers and just being a part of instructing them and what they were doing, whatever sport they were playing, that, that I thought she would be a better coach than I was because she was so focused and she was so engaged in what was going on. But if I was outside doing something, she was going to be there doing it too. And I'll never forget the day I was standing there and I had my hands like this, like I always do when I'm really focused. And I was watching something on the baseball field. And, and I, as soon as I, I was about to say something, and I looked over, and there was, there was Anna Elizabeth with, with her hands on her hips like this. And she had a pink hat, but she had it turned around backwards. And she was watching the same way I was watching. And I noticed her. I don't think anything was coming out. But I noticed her making the sound, and she was trying to spit. And, and in my heart, in that moment, my heart sank. And I began to think, what in the world would her mom be thinking right now? And so I ran over to her and I said, Anna, you're little girl, we, we don't live in Tennessee anymore. Little girls can't spit in public here. And, and, and I remember turning her hat around and I was saying, there, there are some things that I do that you just can't do. And as parents, we want so much for our kids to mirror our behavior so often. And isn't it true when they begin to mirror our behavior, quite often it's the mirroring of our behavior that brings us the most frustration when they act the most like us. And the same thing goes on in the context of the church. Most of the time when we show up at church, our preferences would be that everybody does and says 
everything exactly the way that we do it. And we're not happy if they're not mimicking us. And yet the reality is, in the context of the church, the more people act like you, the more you're going to be frustrated. The more people mimic your behavior, you're probably going to be irritated. And this is why in the book of Philippians, Paul, he begins and he roots all of our behavior in Philippians chapter 2 when he gives the example, when he gives the pattern of Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus was king of glory, had all authority, all power, and yet he did not cling to the rights and privilege of being God. Now he let it go for a time and he took on flesh and he became a man and he became a slave and he became a curse and he died for our sins. That's the pattern. Paul says if you're going to have unity in the church, that's who you have to mimic is Jesus Christ. That's the example that is set before you. Jesus who died on the cross and yet has now been lifted up and raised and seated at the right hand of God and every knee will bow before Him. That's the pattern, this humiliation that leads to exaltation. And so that's the pattern we're all following. And so this is why Paul in verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Now, immediately we go, well, doesn't that contradict everything you just said about we, we shouldn't want everybody to act just like we do? Well, notice he continues. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The example, the pattern. He says, we have displayed before you an example and a pattern that you are to literally, the word imitate means to mimic. You are to mimic our behavior. But this makes no sense if we don't root it in Philippians chapter 2, the humiliation of Jesus. Because Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I am following the example of Christ. Paul, who is suffering for others in a prison cell for preaching the gospel as he pens this letter. And he has made mention of the Epaphroditus who has delivered this letter. Epaphroditus who loves the church and loves Paul and as he is ministering to Paul and he's on the way to Paul for a year-long trek, he becomes very sick, almost to death, and yet he presses on to serve and take care of Paul and then he takes the letter back to Philippians. He says, that's the pattern. That's someone who will suffer for your good. That's someone who has humiliated himself for the best interest of others. Follow him because he's following Christ. He looks like Christ. Suffering. For the sake of others. That's the pattern. So mimic me as I mimic Christ. He also has made mention of Timothy. This one who cares so less of himself. And puts the interests of the church ahead of himself. to, To the point where Paul would say. There is no one like him. There's no one as selfless as Timothy. Why? Because Timothy is following Jesus. So ask the question. To what extent do you really want folks to act like you? Do you want folks to mimic you? Well, you should only want folks to mimic you to the degree you are mimicking Jesus. To the degree that you are suffering for the interest of others the way Jesus did. Jesus establishes that pattern for the church. Jesus told his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem And the religious leaders, 
They're going to take me and they're going to crucify me. They're going to execute me on a cross. And three days later, I'm going to be raised up. And he turns to the disciples and he says, if you want to follow me, that's where we're going. And that's, that's, that's what this looks like. That's what our mission looks like. Crucifixion that leads to resurrection. That's the pattern. So if you want to be a part of it, what does he tell them? Take up your cross and follow me. You want others to follow you? Are you following Jesus? Do you have a cross on your back? Are you suffering for others? And I think it's an important question even for college students that are here today. And, and you're looking for, some of you are looking for a church home. And the question for you is when you look at a church, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a church that when you look in the mirror and, 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 it, and it looks back at you, looks just like you? When you look at the church, a reflection that looks like you in your church. Are, are you looking for you more than you're looking for Jesus in the context of your church? Are you looking around simply for those who look and act like you? They sing the songs you sing. They dress the way that you do. They go to the same places on campus that you go to. They're a part of the same movements. They're a part of the same hashtags. Is that what you're looking for? People who look and act like you? Or when you think, what do I need in a church? It's people who look and act like Jesus. And you should be looking around not for people who look like you, but look like Jesus. Folks who here on a, every Sunday, I am so thankful. We, we have what I would call seasoned saints, because they don't like for me to call them old or older. And every Sunday, they, they let go of their preferences. So many preferences. Uh, the older folks, seasoned saints, this is not how they grew up doing church. I, I, most of us haven't gone to church in a warehouse. But, but they give it up every week. We don't have to have the nice building. We don't have to have the hymnal in our hand. We don't have to sing all my songs. And they give it up every week so that the gospel might move forward. And, and because Jesus is all that matters. And there are patterns, there are examples all across this room, all across this church of folks who are letting go of their rights for the sake of others. That's what you want in the context of the church. Not people who look like you, but people who look like Jesus. People who are willing to open up their pocketbooks and send others around the world to die and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. You want folks who, who, who first and foremost are following Jesus who will say to you, come follow me, imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. And you see it when you look at them. You don't see yourself, but you see Jesus. That's what you need to be looking for in the context of the church. But notice... Paul continues, he says, verse 18, for many, this word many is so important here. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears. Paul is sickened to the point of weeping about who he's going to describe here. They walk, it is their pattern to be enemies of the cross of Christ. Here, Paul refers to many enemies of the cross of Christ. And here he's referring to the Judaizers. And, and the Judaizers, they would teach, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but that's not all. You believe in Jesus, but then you have to become Jewish. And one of the things they would require was circumcision. And then they would require kosher diet, the Jewish diet. Then they would require traditions, then they would require all kinds of other things 
to the point, Paul says, they are adding to Jesus, they are adding to the cross, all of these traditions, all of this extra. To the point, he says, they are enemies of the cross. They nullify the cross. If you come to God with anything other than the cross of Christ, you cannot be saved. It is Jesus' blood and righteousness alone that saves you. And then if you try to add anything, circumcision, tradition, a rite, anything else to the cross, what you are in essence are saying is the cross isn't enough to save me. I've got to add to it. Jesus isn't enough. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's Jesus alone that saves. And Paul says they are adding so much tradition. They, they put so much glory and value in their tradition. They nullify the cross. And he says they are enemies of the cross. Even good things here. They are opposing the cross. But notice he says many. And I think that's so important. Because throughout history, there have been many who oppose the cross. Jesus warned us of this. He says the way of destruction, it's broad. You realize it's easy to go to hell. It's not hard to end up under the judgment of God. But Jesus would say the way of life, the way to the kingdom, it's narrow and few find it. And so with tears in his eye and pain in his gut, he he is protecting the church here from enemies of the cross who would add anything to the cross. And notice he continues to describe them here. He says their end is destruction. They are are glorying in these things to bring salvation, but where they're going to end up is destruction. And notice he says their God is their belly. They've begun to emphasize the diet, Jewish diet, so much that it has become what they're trusting in. And they're walking around the church at church fellowships, and they're examining people's plates at BFG, and, and diet has become the gospel. And he says their God is their belly. They're requiring that before God. And then notice he says they glory in their shame. And I believe that phrase he's referring to circumcision. Can you imagine going around the church asking people, have you been circumcised? I know you're a Jew. Uh, I know you, but here's the Gentile. Hey, hey, brother, have you been circumcised? What are you doing here? And Paul says, that's embarrassing, that's weird, that's awkward, that is shameful. And yet they are putting glory, they are putting weight in these extra things. And so they nullify the gospel. And that's why he says here, with mind, their mind, the way that they think, their whole being is informed by earthly things, basic things, elementary things that can never save. You need the cross of Christ, you need the Spirit of God, you need the gospel to transform your heart. And yet they are trusting in these temporal, earthly, elementary, basic things that they are putting weight in. And now it's outweighed the gospel. It's the same thing that many missionaries saw in the 70s and 80s. As they began to go into places in Africa and Peru and islands out in the middle of nowhere. And they began to look at the work from missionaries in the 50s and 60s. And they would show up in, in villages and people would be dressed uh, very tribal. Uh, and they, they would show up in these villages in Africa and other places. 
And then they would notice certain people who walked around in suits and ties. And they would notice women who had on really long dresses and long shirts. And it was really odd. These people would stand out in the middle of these tribes on these islands in jungles. And you would begin to ask, who are those people? And the answer was, oh, they're the Christians. They're the Christians. And what you would begin to find out as missionaries had traveled into these unreached people groups, they would preach the gospel. People would even get saved. But then they would require the appearance of what Christianity looked like in America. And they would begin to require of the people in these unreached places to dress like American Christians. And that became a requirement to be a Christian in those places. And can you only imagine what eventually happened there? People began to preach appearance and not gospel. And a version of Christianity became Christianity. And it became an enemy of the gospel because no one knew the gospel. It was to be a Christian, you have to dress a certain way. To be a Christian, you have to act a certain way. And I want to ask you today, has your version of Christianity become Christianity? Maybe the way you articulate the gospel. The things that you even believe the gospel teaches and the implications of the gospel in your life. Have you ever been tempted to make those things the gospel? Do do you find yourself saying you can't be a Christian unless this and it's you act a certain way, you vote a certain way, you, you have the appearance, you dress a certain way, you go to church a certain way and you say, I don't see if anybody could be a Christian and do that. I don't see how anybody could be a Christian, and it's not the cross you're talking about. It's something other than the cross. I'm tempted to do that. I've given my life over to the local church. I love the local church. And in my mind, just to confess this before you today, I don't see how anybody can be a Christian and not a member of a local church. I don't see how Christianity functions apart from the local church. I don't. And not just half-hearted, my name's on a list. I'm talking about fervent commitment. I need the local church, and maybe that's just me. And you know how often in my own life, in my own ministry, I will begin to shift membership in the local church to that's all that sums up the gospel? And say, well, you can't be a Christian unless. And maybe that's true. But I can't preach local church membership as the gospel. You know what I preach? The cross of Christ. And I have to believe in my heart of hearts that someone who would stand before the cross of Christ and understand that Jesus shed his blood for their sins and Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God and Jesus would make this promise... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If somebody's going to follow him, commitment to the local church is going to take care of itself. But I have to preach the cross or I will become an enemy of the cross. What, what, what are those things in your life that you, you've begun to say, well, well, this is my brand, this is my style of Christianity, and you make it Christianity. And you're conforming others around you into an image of your Christianity, which at the end of the day, you're looking at an image of yourself. You have made yourself an idol. And it's not the gospel. And you have become an enemy of the cross. 
Because here's the reality. That list of things that you would say you can't be a Christian if. And maybe you would say, to be a Christian you must. And it's not the cross of Christ. Listen, we could gather here people every week who gather here at the same time and worship in the same way and go through the same motions. They go to BFG. They go on the same mission trips. They vote the same way. They protest the same way. They have all the core values and convictions. We could gather a people like that and we could all go to hell if we're not preaching the cross. So we stick with the cross and we let the cross move into all those other areas. By the way, the power of the cross is going to take care of our politics. The power of cross, the power of the cross is going to take care of our view of church and missions and evangelism. If we start with the cross, it's going to take care of all of that. Notice Paul says, this is why, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, one of the very interesting things about the word citizenship is it's actually the word politic. And at one time, politic just meant the way that you live, your citizenship, your allegiance. It wasn't when we think politics, we think arguing, we think debating, we think my side versus your side. Your politic was your citizenship. It's how you fleshed out who you were in a given area. Notice where Paul says our citizenship is. Heaven. And Jesus never loses an election there. Our our citizenship is in heaven. And he can't lose. Heaven, it refers to the realm and power and authority of, of Jesus. And it refers to the place that will come down to earth and rule and reign. There is a city. There is a, there is a, a place of authority, the, the throne room of God right now, where Jesus, who has been slaughtered, who has shed his blood for us, where he stands before God right now, and he grants us access to God, that throne room will come down to a city, and there will be a new Jerusalem, and our citizenship is there. It's there. If you're a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. And notice he says, we await for this. We wait for this to happen. And this is a beautiful way to describe what hope is. Often when we think hope, we think wish or dream. We think Mickey Mouse. We think wishing upon a star, Tinkerbell. We think wish, wish, and it's really generic. No, wish biblically is this. Confident expectation. And if you're a Christian... You believe Jesus died for your sins. He's raised up. He's ruling and reigning. You're simply waiting, knowing he's coming back. You're not wishing in some way. No, you're hoping, meaning you're waiting for it to happen. You know it's going to happen. Why? Because he is Savior. He is Deliverer. He is Ruler. He is Lord. His name is Jesus, the one who is King Christ, who has rescued us from our sin. And notice how he describes what will happen when this kingdom comes. He will transform our lowly body. The word lowly means, it actually means vile. And it means, it means small. And it refers to the way Jesus lowered himself and humiliated himself to the, to the point he was a curse. And yet God raised him up. And here he refers to the way our bodies are subjected to the curse of sin in this world. We, we endure sin in this world and and it goes, it goes down to the very fabric of the earth where the curse of death 
There is decay in the world. Even our bodies deteriorate. And he says, because the penalty of sin has been paid, the power of the curse of sin and death will be reversed down to our bodies. And we will have a glorious body just like Jesus. Jesus, who was in the cave in the ground, and his body laid on a, on a stone, lifeless, and it was stiffening up because the effects of death had overcome his body. Three days after laying in this cave, his heart began to beat, and he began to push blood through organs and tendons in his body. And his eyelids that were matted with blood began to flicker. And the tips of his fingers that were cold began to move. He reached up and he grabbed the grave cloth that was on his face and he pulled it off. And he folded it and he set it on the ground beside him. What Paul says here. In the same way Jesus died on the cross for your sin, defeating sin, your sin, in the same way Jesus was raised and got up in the hole in the ground, you will too. Some of you, when Jesus returns, you will bust out of your coffins. And you will be in your body. The body that you're in now will be made new and you will rule and reign with Him forever. Some of us, Right now, if he comes back, now, we will be joined with him and we will be perfect before God. Sin will not separate us from the Father, but sin will not hinder our bodies in heaven. That's why the body is so important. We don't go to funerals and act as if the person there in the body isn't there. No, it's his body. He's with Jesus and that's the body he'll live in forever. That's why we take care of the body. It's important. It's important because we believe in resurrection. And Paul describes this here. He says this is the very power that pulled Jesus out of the ground. And it enables him, notice here, to subject all things to himself. This explosive power that, that, that the world had never seen. There's sin, there's death, and we're spiraling down in decay. And then all of a sudden the world had never seen except through the voice of Christ a body get up from being dead. That power will come from heaven and subject all things to it. The power that overcomes sin and death will cover the globe as the waters cover the sea. And the glory of Christ will come down. The glory, meaning He will bring all things into submission to Him as He did when He was on earth and He spoke. And sin and death was reversed before our very eyes. Demons bowed down and said, are you come to destroy me? The answer was yes. He controlled the created order. He spoke and Lazarus came forth. That same power will come down and it will encompass the whole globe. That's the hope of the gospel. The penalty of death is gone for the Christian and the power of sin and death will be gone forever. Now, why does he mention it here? Because transformation in our lives and the lives of others only comes through the rule and reign of Jesus. And yet we so often want it to come through my rule and my reign. I'm going to demand of you how you should act. Notice the word transformation here, change. How many of you got married? 
and you looked at the other person and you said, yeah, they got some things I don't like. But as soon as we walk out of the back of that church, I'll start changing them. And 30 years later, you ain't changed them. They still spit outside. And you're frustrated and you're angry. How often do you enter relationships like that and you say, I'm so smart. I know so much about Jesus and the Bible. If I can just, and people become little tools and little puppets for you. If I can get involved in their life, they'll start thinking like me. They'll start treating their kids like I treat mine. They'll start managing their finances the way I do. They'll start thinking about politics the way that I do. And you look at people and you think, if I could just change them. Paul says, no, we preach the power of the cross and we trust ultimately that Jesus will change them however he wants to. And ultimately, he's going to change, even down to their body, he's going to transform them. So we have to trust him to make the changes. We preach the cross and we cling to the cross. And you know, one of the ways Jesus is going to change your friends, you look at your friends and you go, they're just so unloving. They're unmerciful. They need to get their act together. Well, one of the ways Jesus is going to change them is by having to deal with you. And the more you're focused on loving them like Jesus, you're going to be less focused on how they ain't loving like Jesus. And that's the point here. Jesus' rule comes through crucifixion. The, the, the exaltation begins with a cross. And so the question you have to ask when you look at others is not how can I change them, but how can I die for them? How can I die to self? How can I mimic and pattern the crucifixion of Christ in their life and die for them and endure their shortcomings and endure the things that just irritate me? The transformation Jesus wants in the life of others comes through humble sacrifice. And when you are focused more on acting like Jesus, you are less focused on others acting like you. And you suffer and you sacrifice for others. The reality is that he talks about the rule and reign of heaven here. Heaven will not be a bunch of people who take on your appearance. Praise God. No, they will look like Jesus. In that they serve and they love like Jesus forever. Isn't that encouraging to you? I, I realize in the context of the church, there are, there are things I want to happen in the lives of people. There are things that I want to happen in the life of our church, mission and ministry that I want us to be a part of. And, and so often I become wrapped up into those things and, and I want them just because I want them. And most of the time, or a lot of the time, it tends, when I get frustrated, it's more about me than anybody else. And I want that change, and I want that thing because of me. And I'm so thankful that there's a day coming where Jesus will jerk my body up out of a coffin, and I will love and serve like Him forever. I really do want to love and serve and do ministry, and it have nothing to do with me. I want that. And guess what? Jesus says it's coming. It's coming for you, and it's coming from the people most unlike you. So love. Preach the cry, cross. 
Cling to the gospel. When I look at my daughter, Anna, I really am glad that she doesn't still spit in public. And I'm really glad that she doesn't do a lot of other things that I do. That are very unlike Jesus. And I'm most thankful for all the ways that she's like Jesus. And that's the way we show up at church. I don't care if you look like me. I don't care if you have the same spiritual resume I have. But maybe as we follow Jesus, we'll have similar scars.